We have a short session now. So uh, we're going to have a few of these. The way this is working, uh, Donnie and PJ laid some foundation work talking about leading in exile, talking about you know, uh, loving the city, uh, uh, seeking the welfare of the city, and also praying on its behalf. And now, as we look at leading in exile, we're going to look at some specific topics, really practical topics, uh, such as, for instance, politics. How, how does that work in exile? Such as the opportunity of, of foster care. Um, and right now, I'm going to have a, a brief session on the topic of homosexuality. This is, a, this is a tough topic. Um, in fact, while I was listening to Donnie's talk, I was thinking, I wish I could do a talk on loving the city and seeking its welfare. Um, I'm, a, I'm the Beaufort site pastor, and by topic selection, you can see who the lead pastor and who the site pastor is. Um, but I get, I get to do this, and this is important. Um, it's, it's difficult to talk about because there's so much nuance, and I just want to say off the bat that there's so much that I'm not going to be able to cover. I'm zooming in specifically on some pastoral issues, hopefully going to be helpful to some of you uh, wrestling through what does it look like to lead a church and lead specifically pastor people through some of these issues. Um, I'm also not an expert. I'm just somebody thinking these things through, and hopefully I can help you think through some of these things as well. You know, as, as pastors and, and leaders, you really owe it to your congregations to spend some time wrestling with, thinking about, and reading up on this to learn how to talk about it well. Uh, you really can't afford not to in this land that we uh, find ourselves in exile in. It would really be pastoral malpractice uh, to not uh, really wrestle with this in, in this day and to, and to learn how to speak to it with empathy and clarity, uh, with, with grace and truth, with compassion and love, and also uh, wisdom and biblical, biblical clarity. So in the short time that we have, I just want to give a handful of important takeaways for navigating this current moment pastorally. So uh, first point I want to make is in regard to some of the debates that are actually ongoing with this issue over language and terminology. Um, and I, I want to encourage you to not divide over language, but rather to unite over costly commitment to Jesus. So in case you have not been following the literature or some of the conversations going on with this issue, there are a lot of Christians and Christian leaders wrestling with and arguing about whether it's okay to call uh, Christians dealing with homosexuality, to call them gay, or, or if it's better to say same-sex attracted. That might not seem like a big deal, but it, it, a lot of people are arguing about this. So some Christians are calling themselves gay celibate Christians, and they've been criticized for using that word. Uh, so, for, for example, uh, one writer believes, she, she writes, the word gay declares political advocacy, and when people hear that someone is gay, they automatically link that to sexual practice. And so she asks, why would you want to label yourself and identify yourself with a sin pattern? That's a, it's a point worth, worth listening to. On the other hand, the other preferred term, same-sex attracted, is also not without baggage. The term originated in what's known as the ex-gay movement, which uh, was reparative therapy. In other words, therapy that was engineered at trying to change gay people's desires and, and make them straight. And that actually proved to be pretty damaging for a lot of people. If, if you're not aware, uh, many people have scars of shame and trauma as they prayed and prayed and prayed and fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and, and their desires failed to change. Um, and so for many, the, the, that language that came out of that movement is somewhat harmful. Uh, also, the language of same-sex attracted, to some it sounds clinical, sounds like it's sort of a diagnosis. 
Um, not only that, some gay Christians will say that when their gay friends hear that term same-sex attracted, it sounds sort of goofy to them as a secular gay person, and it could be a bit of a turnoff. So some would say there's a good missional reason to use the word gay, uh, because saying there's a gay, I'm a gay Christian could be a way to provide space for others who are gay to realize that they could also become Christians. That's not something that, that is not for them. They're not automatically excluded. Of course, the danger that needs to be recognized is that using that adjective could also communicate that it's okay to be a Christian but never repent of your sin, which we wouldn't want to communicate. So I, I think all I'm trying to communicate is this is a bit tricky, and there's good arguments on, on both sides, but I would, I would encourage you, and I, what I would say is that if someone is using the term gay and they're not speaking of, they're not using that word to refer to their core identity, they're simply using that word to describe their unique experience of attraction, that's not something we need to necessarily fight about. Um, See, for the celibate Christians who, who deal with homosexuality, the celibate great Christians that are, in fact, trying to live a life of radical commitment to Jesus, who are denying their sexual desires in a world that says you need sex to be happy, they're, they're denying a culture that says you should actually be proud of, you should take pride in your homosexuality, and instead, they're choosing to believe that Jesus is better than sex, uh, that he's better than everything, and that might mean for them that they'll never get married, never have children, never have a family. Are we really gonna look at their lives and their sacrifice and commitment to Jesus and say, well, the real problem is you're using a word that we don't like? Um, it reminds me of a verse in 2 Timothy chapter 2 where it says, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, it only ruins the hearers. And you know, the thing is that most Christians who are arguing about this actually agree that gay sex is a sin and marriage is between a man and a woman, but there, there's some arguing and dividing over words, which I think we should be cautious of. If you find that you're arguing with someone and you're not actually arguing about a thing, you're arguing about the words that describe the thing, you actually agree about the thing, then it's possible that that argument is unhelpful and that you're slipping into an overly argumentative spirit that is not valuing church unity like it should. And so yes, using the correct words can be valuable. It's worth thinking about, praying about, but we should also be very slow to separate over words. Um, if you're not a pastor, maybe this is not a conversation you're even privy to, but for us who are pastors and speak a lot of words, this is something that some of us really need to think about. And I make this point because in my reading on this topic, I actually find more writing on this issue, more evangelical hand-wringing over what words we're using rather than discussion about how are we gonna love and serve and be on mission to gay people. And that seems wrong to me. So how do we love and serve them and be on mission? Um, what I would say right off the bat is to lead with repentance. Lead with repentance. Jesus told us to uh, check the log in our own eye before we critique the speck in someone else's eye. And the reality is, is that when we address this issue um, in the church or other sexual issues, we cannot pretend that the church has always led the way with love towards this community. Um, many gay folks of a certain age remember that dur during the AIDS crisis, when they were dying at alarming rates, the attitude of the evangelical church seemed to be good riddance. Um, I have a, a gay celibate Christian friend who comes on and off to our church, but he still struggles with what he calls PTSD uh, when he encounters Christians in large groups. He, he says he feels physically afraid and anxious to be around a whole bunch of Christians at the same time. And as a result, um, he told me recently that his anxiety was getting the best of him and he couldn't come to church anymore. And I felt like he was being a little dramatic, to be honest. I found that to be a little bit surprising. And I got together with him, got lunch with him, and he told me a story that when he was in high school, he was tied to a tree and beaten. 
by none other than the president of his the local chapter of his FCA at his high school, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. It's a Christian organization at a high school. And he's, he's not alone in that kind of experience. Uh, many gay folks say that their experience of the church is that they were dehumanized, isolated, shunned, or just kicked out of the church the moment it was found out that they experienced same-sex attraction. And so it's easy to say, well, I haven't done this. My church hasn't done this. But the American evangelical church has. And it's really impossible to separate ourselves from that legacy. Um, you know, Second Peter 2, talking about exile, or First Peter 2, talking to the exiles, it says, um, as exiles, live honorably among the Gentiles so that when they see your good deeds, they'll glorify God in heaven, right? Well, it's worth admitting that in, with this group of people, the church has not really done that very well. Uh, but what we get to do now is what Christians always get to do. We get to repent. We get to repent. We get to own it. We have the privilege to repent, and we should lead with this. We should lead with this. Maybe you've heard of the Nashville Statement. Um, it's basically a creed declaring what the Bible says about gender and sexuality for pastors to sign off on as a way to sort of stand up for truth. It's 14 articles declaring that we affirm certain things, we deny certain things. You know, we affirm that gay sex is sinful. We deny that God can be glorified in same-sex marriage, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, I found one thing pretty interesting. A guy named Preston Sprinkle is an evangelical writer who wrote, I think, one of the best books on the traditional sexual ethic where in the book he really showed how the Bible does in fact call sexual or same-sex sexual relationships sinful. But despite that, he actually criticized the Nashville Statement, not because it was wrong. He agreed really with basically what it was saying, but in his opinion, it was completely tone deaf. Listen to what he said. He said, what is most troubling about this statement is what's missing. For instance, nowhere does it say we affirm that evangelicalism has historically not treated gay people with kindness, compassion, and relational delight. Rather, we've often turned a blind eye to dehumanizing rhetoric. Or we affirm that singling out LGBT people as particularly grievous sinners, while, for instance, a porn epidemic rages on in the church, is a horrifically hypocritical posture. Or we affirm that Christians everywhere should confront any form of bullying towards gay people. Or we deny that gay or transgender jokes are acceptable Christian behavior and should be confronted by Christian leaders everywhere. Now, it didn't say that. Um, it just said the truth, which is good. It's good to say the truth. Um, so a big takeaway, though, for me is that when this issue comes up, absolutely, we've got to declare the truth. But let's let the first thing they hear from us be a posture of repentance. For example, when this comes up in my preaching, I will almost always spend at least a sentence or two, if not more, owning the church's failure to love this community well and calling our church to be an example of something different so that when the Gentiles do see our good works, they will, in fact, glorify God who's in heaven. So looking in before we look out and point fingers at others, it wins a listening ear. It wins a listening ear. It sets a gospel tone to the conversation. Final big takeaway for us leading churches is that we must, we must, if we are going to, to pastor these people well, we must honor, empower, and disciple the single and celibate life. As pastors, we've got to make a way for single and celibate people to be honored, empowered, and discipled, or how on earth can we expect our churches to be life-giving places for Christians dealing with homosexuality? So a, a few points in this. Uh, and how do we do this? How do we honor, empower, and disciple the single celibate life? First of all, we've got to recognize that someone is not an immature Christian just because of their particular temptations. See, a gay, celibate, or single Christian is not a worse Christian just because they might deal with different temptations than you do. Uh, one writer, I thought, put it really helpfully, Bruce Miller. He says, 
Our maturity in Christ is not measured by the diminishing power of our temptations, but by the strength of our resistance and the clarity of our repentance. The fact that a Christian is persistently tempted to a certain sin does not mark them as immature in Christ. So you shouldn't make someone feel like in order to be a truly mature Christian, the way that they're particularly tempted needs to change or their desires have to change, their attractions might never change. Now, it's possible, right? Many, many Christians who experience a gay orientation or a same-sex attraction are, in fact, able to experience some kind of change and maybe even enter into a heterosexual marriage. But that is certainly not everyone's experience. And that should not even be the main desired end state for them, for, uh, for us as their pastors. Our hopes for them have to be bigger than that, than that they get married one day. Of course, God can do whatever he wants. He can heal anybody. But just like we don't put shame on, you know, we know God can heal any disease, but we don't put shame on a diabetic person for being unable to pray their diabetes away. And so in the same way, we should not have any expectation that a gay person will be able to pray their gay attractions away. For most people who experience same-sex attractions, it will likely be a thorn in their flesh that they will carry all their lives. Maybe not. We can and should pray and expect great things, but we also need to help people realize that a celibate life, if that is their future, that does not mean that they're missing out on the good life. Sex is a good gift but it is not essential to a good life. We have to be really clear about that in our churches, that marriage is not everything, sex is not everything, and that a celibate life is not less than a full life, and a celibate Christian is not lesser than in any way. You know, I I had some weird thoughts when I was preparing this. I was thinking about how Jesus had a human male body. Jesus was fully male, fully human. That means Jesus went through puberty, Jesus had male sex organs. Jesus had male testosterone, okay? This makes us a little bit uncomfortable to think about. You know, despite our theology, we prefer to think of fully human Jesus as actually less than fully human, don't we? But Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we were, and I don't even know what that is supposed to mean to a broken person like me if it doesn't mean that Jesus experienced some kind of sexual temptation. He likely experienced sexual desire as a human male would, but he never had sex. He surrendered every human desire completely to his father, and he was celibate all of his life. He was never married, and he was a fully satisfied human being living the human life exactly the way it was meant to be lived. And so a gay Christian who chooses celibacy and surrenders his or her sexuality to God is not a worse Christian. In some ways, they might even be a better Christian. Next, give singles opportunities for ministry and leadership. You know, what, um, what they'll often find, I think, instead, is that much of our programming and our leadership pipelines, are, they're often designed and engineered for married couples. But it's very interesting to me that if you look in the New Testament, there are very few examples of married couples that are commended for their service to God. Of course, you have Priscilla and Aquila. I know you're always, you were all just about to say that. They're the exception that proves the rule. The other one you see in there, Ananias and Sapphira, that one did not go off so great, okay? (laughs) And most other New Testament leaders were either single or simply have no spouse mentioned. But you wouldn't know that or think that if you look at who we tend to focus on in our churches for leadership, who gets the opportunities, who gets the bulk of the discipleship efforts. So I think of um, 
More uh, you know, examples as well outside of the Bible. More recently, I was thinking about Jackie Pullinger, who was a, a single young woman who had a dynamic ministry to the opium-addicted gangs in the walled city of Hong Kong. We see a story like that. We, we see ministry like what's happening in the New Testament. And are we even let, willing to let a single person do call to worship? Uh, in many churches, we instead treat singleness like a waiting period, a season you have to just get through before you get to the really important stuff. And we've got to be really intentional about how we talk about this because the Christian culture that many of us were raised in didn't leave a lot of room for a dynamic, fulfilling Christian life as a single. Uh, we often say things to our daughters from the moment they're, you know, young. We, we say stuff like, you know, well, we've been praying for a husband for you since the moment we found out you were a girl in mommy's belly, right? Um, or, or now that you're a teenager, you should wear this purity ring and pray for God to bring you a godly husband. But what if he doesn't? And what vision are we giving uh, uh, as parents, our, our, our children, for their future? What, are we give, what kind of vision are we giving the parents uh, in our churches for their children's future? And is it a vision larger than a good marriage, a family? Because making babies is a good gift, but that is actually not the Christian mission. The New Testament shifts the focus from being fruitful and multiply to make disciples. And, and it shifts the focus from the biological family to the church family. And that's actually totally revolutionary. Um, when Jesus said in Matthew 12 to the man who, who told him, who's my mother and who are my brothers? He says, stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mothers and my brothers. That must have blown some people's minds. And this is the next thing that we really have to do. We've got to create church family that transcends biological family if we want to disciple these people well. And maybe you haven't noticed this because I think family and biological family is so a part of our culture, but the New Testament actually doesn't say that much about biological family. Of course, there are a handful of amazing passages that we love, right? But it's like a handful of verses. And because this is so important to us, we'll take those three to five verses and turn them into eight-week-long series about parenting and marriage because those things are important. There's nothing wrong with that, but in terms of emphasis and content, the New Testament has overwhelmingly more to say about our relationships with one another in the family of the church than it has to say about the relationships within our biological families. In fact, one of our, all of our favorite wedding passages, 1 Corinthians 13, all about love, we love to make it about husbands and wives, it's actually about church relationships. The context is about building one another up in the church. In the church, you shouldn't be lonely even if you don't have biological family. I was moved recently by uh, something uh, a Christian writer named Wesley Hill shared on social media. On Twitter, he posted this. It says, my godson was uh, born this morning. Rejoice with us. Now, here's why this was moving to me. Wesley Hill is a gay, celibate Christian writer and pastor, and this means he will not ever have biologic, uh, biological children of his own. But within his church family, uh, Wesley has been made the godparent to six different kids. And he says here, rejoice with us, not rejoice with them, right? He sees himself as belonging in a meaningful way to this family. See, in Jesus, singleness should not have to equal loneliness. Not all of us are guaranteed marriage or children, but in Christ, all of us are guaranteed what? Mothers and sisters and brothers. Jesus says, here they are. And we've often made marriage and biological family more than Jesus seems to have wanted us to make it, often at the expense of singling out celibate and single Christians. In fact, I think that the single and celibate folks in our midst have a unique ability to remind us of the possibility 
for us to fall into the idolatry of family and marriage, and we've got to have years to hear that. I love how one celibate pastor named Ed Shaw puts it. He says, God has put sex on this planet to make us want to go to heaven. I know there are many today who will think that it is a great tragedy to die a virgin, but I hope I will, Ed says, because I know that I will not have lost out on anything too significant because the Bible teaches me that I will have missed only the brief foretaste that sex is meant to be of the eternal reality of the perfect union between Christ and his church that I will one day experience forever. As we pastor in exile, can we remember that Jesus is that good and that he's enough, that he's that worth it? You know, it's easy to think that people in a gay lifestyle, they're probably never gonna follow Jesus, right? Like, we can forget how powerful the gospel is and how good Jesus is. You know, a, a gay couple comes into our church and we're just like, man, they're probably never gonna hear. I mean, once, I, once they find out what we believe, as if Jesus wasn't good enough, as if his sheep don't still hear his voice, as if he won't still draw all people to himself. If we're faithful, he will be faithful. And people will still find Jesus to be worth their everything. And even gay people will find that it's, worth it to sell everything and follow Jesus. The question for us is, will we be ready as our churches, will will our churches be ready to love and pastor them when they do? (laughs) Um, So that's all I've got. Let me leave you with some resources because there's so much about this topic that's worth diving into. First of all, a memoir by Wesley Hill. He's a guy who deals with same-sex attraction. He's a pastor. He's celibate. It's called Washed and Waiting. It's an amazing book about his journey. People to be Loved. People to be Loved is that book by Preston Sprinkle that dives into the Bible and really uh, unearths uh, what the Bible says about same-sex relationships. And then finally, a book by Bruce Miller called Leading a Church in a Time of Sexual Questioning, which gives some more practical pastoral handles for you. But I hope that was helpful. Brian, you want to give us some further instructions?